I invite you to find uh, Matthew chapter 6 in your Bible. It's on a page 1116 in your sanctuary Bible. Matthew chapter, uh, pardon me, Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14. Romans 6, 1 through 14. A few words of introduction before we begin. I want to follow up a little bit from last week. We talked in Romans 5 about original sin, this idea that we're born into this fallen line of humanity that was broken when Adam and Eve transgressed in the garden. But at the same time, this original sin that came from this one man was countered and nullified by this original righteousness and obedience that came from another man, Jesus Christ, in, su- in such way that even the righteousness that flows from this one act of obedience is more than enough to cover over the transgressions of that one man, including future transgressions from the time of Christ on, which is, means us, all the sins that you've committed in your life and actually all the sins that you will continue to commit in your life until you die are covered by the obedience of Christ and the righteousness that flows out of that. And one of the images that comes from that is that sin actually, while it's not a good thing, it gave God the opportunity to display this beautiful and incredible and abundant grace to the world. And so sin is not a blessing. Sin is a horrible thing. But yet sin, uh, in a sort of beautiful paradox, allowed God to display such beauty to us that is truly breathtaking. Um, So much so, in fact, that Paul concludes our passage from last week by saying that as sin increases, grace increases all the more. And uh, for me, that's, that's really perfect. It's, it's, it, my situation is that I love sinning, and God loves forgiving my sins. So we have a perfect relationship, you know? It's just, I can't think of a better person. I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but uh, the question that might be forming in your mind is, well, gosh, if sinning produces such an abundance of grace, then maybe I should just sin more. You know, maybe I should just do it full, full bore because then more grace will flow out of heaven onto me. Uh, I, I like to imagine, what if my child said that to me, you know? <laughs> well, Papa, you, you know, you're so forgiving when I do these wrong things when I hit my brother or whatever. Um, maybe I should just hit him harder and see if you'll then love me harder, you know? Uh, what would we say to a child like that? Well, we'd have to have a conversation. This is actually a question that the Apostle Paul anticipates, and he asks it rhetorically, and then he answers it for us. And that's what our passage is today, Uh, Romans 6. That's the question that Paul starts to ask and answer in our passage. So listen for that answer, and we'll see what happens as Paul answers it. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we found the question right away, Romans 6.1. Here's the question. If sinning is so great and it produces such an abundance of grace, shouldn't we sin more? And what does Paul say? What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If this lever produces grace, should we operate the lever a little bit harder? And it's a very definitive kind of no. That If you look at the Greek language it's just not it's not just the word no it's kind of this emphatic no absolutely not by no means never not at all no we don't sin more so that grace increases and the answer and the reason why is because something has absolutely changed in our life as a result of our identification with Jesus Christ as our savior and that thing is that we have died Now, that's a little confusing to me, to be honest, because I feel perfectly alive right now. I'm breathing. I assume my heart is beating. It's pumping blood to my extremities. It's doing all the processes biologically that make somebody alive is true for me and everyone else in this room. All right? You are alive, aren't you? What kind of death is Paul talking about? You have died, he said, to sin. If you've died to something, you can't live in it any longer. And then he says something that presumes knowledge on the part of the people reading this letter from him. And I think this one is actually particularly important. This is probably the center of it all right here. Don't you know? You could even say, don't you remember? Don't you know? Isn't it obvious to you? that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. This shocking language. When we, get, when we baptize people, especially when we baptize an infant, death is the farthest thing from our mind, isn't it? Right? We think only about the new life to come. We th- especially if it's a young child, we just think about all the opportunity and the newness and the life that they're going to have from that point on. When an adult is baptized or somebody who's old enough to assent to baptism, we only think about the future of a life spent with God. We don't think about death. Um, 
And I think this is actually a deficiency in how we practice baptism, and it's a deficiency in how we even understand what it means to become a follower of Christ. I think, we, I think it would be very interesting to ask ourselves this question that Paul asks us. Aren't you aware, don't you remember, that when you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ's death? Now, just informally, when you think of baptism, when you're reminded of your baptism, how many of us, raise your hand, think, I was baptized into Christ's death? How many of us, okay, how, let me put it this way. How many of us don't think of it that way? Okay, great. And, and I'm with you right there because I often forget this passage. This is a very important passage. But Paul assumes that the people he's writing to knew this. He assumes that they knew this. How? We're not sure. It's possible that they had a hymn or a saying that they used all the time when they gathered to worship. And it might have been something like this. We were baptized into Christ's death so that we could live a new life. It was a litany, or maybe it was a prayer that they said together, or maybe it was something that Paul said to them when, uh, although he didn't really um, probably have an opportunity to visit them uh, and teach there directly, it's some prior teaching that Paul is drawing on. Don't you remember? Don't you know that when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death? And that changes the complexion of baptism a lot, doesn't it? It kind of enlarges our sense of baptism. When we're baptized, we're baptized into the act that Christ did of going to the cross in obedience to God to save us from our sins. And this is huge. But we don't like to talk about death. We don't like to talk about the end of things. We like to talk about the beginning of things. Uh, and it, it's actually, it makes me think that perhaps we need to create a hymn that talks about our baptism into Christ's death so that we're reminded of it. Or perhaps we need to have that as a prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for baptizing me into your death. This all sounds a bit morbid. This all sounds about a bit dark. It, go, it, gets, it goes on. It goes on. But Paul kind of resurrects it a little bit. He says in verse 4, if you follow along, we were therefore buried with him. We, if, you get, if you die, you get buried. We were buried with him through baptism into death. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that, now there's a reason for all this, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we want to have a resurrection like Jesus had, we have to identify with him in his death as well. If we want to be resurrected, raised people, raised to newness of life, we have to go under the water of baptism. We have to go under the water and die before we're raised again. Um, there's an image that maybe um, would help us a little bit. There's two images. The first is a, just a simple one from Exodus, which I think even Paul is drawing on a little bit here. And we had a, a mini-series on Exodus, I think, in September Think about the people of Israel. They're pushed up against the Red Sea by Pharaoh's army. There's just a cloud 
of, of uh, smoke dividing them, a pillar of smoke. And it's keeping them at bay. Actually, there's some fire there too, so that's pretty intimidating. But nonetheless, here they are. They're backed up against the sea. They think they're going to die. The Egyptians are just waiting for this pillar to go away so that they can pounce. And the sea opens up, and they walk under the surface of the water. They don't get wet. It says that they stay dry. But you can imagine they're looking up, and this is very precarious. There's a wall of water on either side of them. They go under, and they walk along the depths of the sea. And they're, in a sense, it's like their baptism. It reminds us of our baptism. It's a place of great peril. It's a place of great deliverance from God. And they come out the other side, and they're free people now. The Egyptians can't touch them. And what's more is then God removes that pillar. The Egyptian army foolishly chases after them. God waits until that army is in the middle of the sea. And then the walls collapse and that army is drowned. And their freedom is totally guaranteed from that point on. So what's happened to them? In in essence, they've gone under the water like in a baptism. And they've come out the other side, but they're in a new place. That thing that was chasing them and wanting to destroy them has also gone into the water, but the water has surrounded it and killed it. And now they're both perfectly safe and they're in a new land. They're in a new country. That's what happens to you when you become a Christian. That's what happens to you when you undergo baptism, whether we believe that or not. I mean, sometimes people say, well, my baptism was just a symbol. Maybe it was. We can't always debate all these things all together. But if you read this passage from Romans, your baptism was a dying to yourself and to sin and being raised again to new life in Christ. And you went under and you came up again. Even if you were sprinkled, there the water is symbolic. But if you went under the water and you came back up again, You died in that moment, and you were raised to new life in that moment. Furthermore, when you came out, maybe it was on the other side of the swimming pool. I don't know. Maybe you came out the way you went in. It doesn't matter. Theologically, symbolically, you came out, and you were in a new country. You had a new king. You had a new land. You had a whole new beginning, a whole new future. What's stunning that we see among the Israelites and among us is Even after all that, sometimes we say, oh, I wish we could go back. There's no way back. Is God going to part the sea again so that you can backtrack? Not likely. It's just not going to happen. I mean, we can wish for things that we'll never get. That's human nature. That's just where we are. God is patient with us when we want to go back to Egypt. But he also points out how ludicrous it is. There's some comfort in this too when you've died and Paul talks about this when you die you can't die again when you die you're dead you you don't need to die again you won't die again you can't die again furthermore when you're dead now this is physically when you're dead there's a lot of terrible things that happen your family's sad you're you're dead so your life has ended the silver lining of death is that you can't sin anymore. I mean, so there's that, right? But you, that's true. That's what Paul says. If you die, you can't sin anymore. Sin has no power over someone who's physically dead. Now, in the same way, and this is harder, 
Sin has no ultimate power over someone who has died spiritually. It, and death has no power over that person either. Death is not able to come after you anymore. You're free. You can't die again. Once you've died, you can't die again. Now, we know you'll sin again after you're baptized, after you become a Christian. Of course you'll sin again. And as you sin, the more you sin, the more God's grace will abound to you. But you don't sin so that that grace will come, come more freely. Yet, you're in this state of what I would call relief and comfort and freedom. Because the most important decision of your life is already behind you. And the thing that threatens you the most in life can never touch you again. I want to maybe try to illustrate this a little bit with a um, classic story that actually touches my family a little bit. My mother, my mother was very young. Uh, she was born in 1937. The German Navy and army invaded Norway in 1940. And she, even though she was about three years old at the time, it was incredibly memorable for her that the day that happened. She remembered it like it was yesterday. And there was word coming that the Germans were going to come up the harbor and, um, and invade Oslo, the capital. And in a strange twist, the, the British Air Force um, came to bomb Oslo's harbor, which sounds strange, but what they wanted to do was destroy what was left of the, of the Norwegian Navy so the Germans wouldn't get it. My mother remembers the, the British airplanes flying overhead and, and the whole family not knowing what was going on. They were trying to get to the train station so that they could get out of town. And she remembers her mother, who had a heart condition and couldn't crouch or bend over, just leaning against the wall of the building and kind of holding on for dear life. She remembers that. She remembered that very clearly. She also remembers the day that Norway... Um, she remembers the day when the war was over. Norway was never really liberated. Uh, the Germans actually stayed in Norway until the very end of the war. There were a few Germans there. And so they all actually had to surrender to the Norwegians when, when Germany capitulated. And she remembers that day. And that was five years later, obviously, so she was much older. But what a day. I mean, all these flags that had been forbidden suddenly came out of people's houses and were being waved everywhere. It's a beautiful thing. One of the things that happened uh, on that day when, when the invasion began was that the Germans had as a, as a big goal was to capture the king and the queen of Norway so that they could kind of make them say what they wanted to say and get Norway, Norway's government to sort of capitulate to the Nazis and make it more of an ally instead of an occupied territory. The Norwegian Navy, and this is before it was destroyed by the, by the British Air Force, was actually able to repel the Germans a lot more than the Germans thought. And so the Germans weren't able to land for a lot longer than they thought they would. That gave an opportunity for the king of Norway and his family to get on a train and go north. And they convened a, mini a miniature cabinet of the whole government and gave powers to the king to sort of act as the ruler in absentia over the parliament. And then the king got on the train again and he traveled north up to uh, another city north um, and when you think about it think about it this way is that the Germans were coming for the king 
and they were slowly spreading north. But the king was also moving north. And in, in my mind, it's almost like this claw was coming behind the train as it was moving along, moving along, moving along. And the Germans took over more control of the country. And the, the king and his family uh, got all the way north. And that, that death that was behind them, it could never reach them. It could never quite catch up with them. This is how I think about the death that Paul is warning about here, the death of sin, the death of our brokenness, the death that comes from fallen humanity, original sin. If you are in Christ, it's this thing that comes after you and it chases you, but it'll never catch you. It'll always be behind there, but it'll never get you. Now, we think about the king's train. It finally pulls into the northernmost station it can pull into. Could that train go back? <laughs> what if the king said, well, let's turn the locomotive around and let's realign all the cars and let's head south. I mean, who would have done that, you know, to, to march right into enemy territory? This is what Paul says. By no means, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? How can you go back? Not how can you, like how could you, how terrible of you. More like how could you? It's impossible to do this. It's physically impossible. It's spiritually impossible. It's logically ridiculous and impossible. You died to sin. How can you possibly go back to living in it? How can that train head south again? How can that happen? It can't. It can't. We could hear this as a word of warning, but I hear it as a word of comfort. Your train cannot turn around. It can't. You can't cross the Red Sea back to Egypt. You can't. Your flag has been planted in a new land because of your baptism, because of your identification with Christ in his death. And the new life that he has as a result of his resurrection is yours. You can't give it up. You can't return it for a refund. You can't do anything like that. It's impossible. Can we sin more so that grace abounds? Probably. But why would we? How can we? We can't. We've died to sin. We have a new life in Christ. A little bit more of that story of the king is he finally had to leave the northern part of Norway too. And the, the British evacuated him to England so that he could set up a sort of a miniature kingdom in exile there. The Nazis still wanted to catch the king. And the British had to keep radio silence about the ships that were escorting the king so that they didn't, nobody knew that the king was actually in the middle of this flotilla of ships that were heading for England. 1,500 British soldiers, uh, British Navy men died protecting the king because they, weren't, they, they couldn't call for help uh, as they were escorting the king back to Egypt. The, the German Navy sunk several British ships as they brought the king back. I think that imagery, even though that's a human story, that's kind of the imagery that we've got here, is that somebody died to secure our passage through the Red Sea, to secure our passage from death into life. It's Christ Jesus. It's, that's the grace that flows out. 
It wasn't too much to ask 1,500 people to die so that a small family of people could live because it meant that much to the British. It meant that much to the Norwegians. Now, now if some of you are like, I know some more Norwegian history today. I'm like, yeah. It's interesting history. Uh, and in a little bit, it kind of dovetails with what we're talking about today. By the way, I'm half Norwegian. Did anyone know that? That's why this is uh, in there. Which, <laughs> mm, it's from my mother, so I'd have to say the best half. That means the worst half is, the worst quarter is Swedish. Sorry, Per. My dad was half Swedish. Yeah. I want to I follow up from our first readings. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And this is how it read. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, even in that state that you were in, this is before you became a believer, God reached into your life and made you alive with Christ, and he forgave all our sins, and he has canceled the written code, the law, which we're not able to keep with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, and he took it away. And here's the beautiful thing nailing it to the cross. God took the law and nailed it to the cross with Christ. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So I guess what I want to say to you today is that you're dead. You're dead. When you're baptized... You entered into Christ's death. You were buried with him in your baptism. And, and you're dead in this way. You're dead to whatever could hurt you in this world, ultimately really hurt you. You still sin, but sin doesn't have power over you anymore. You're still under, you still have the law to continue with, you, but the law is not over you anymore. The law does not have the power to condemn you anymore when you're in Christ. When you've died and been raised again with Christ, You've been put into a new place, a new country. You have a new king. You have a new Lord. You have a new Savior. And you've surrendered to him. There is no way that you could either go back to that old life or be pulled back into that old life. You're secure in it now. Sin, death, and the devil is never going to have power over you. Never, ever, ever. The only way I... And I know to think about this, and this is hard for me to think about because we have young children, but, and as you get older, this gets harder too, but think about the last time you had a particularly good night's sleep. Who's had a really good night's sleep lately? I mean, yes, good, Pam, right on, good. You're right, Christian, woo! Not many. Ona, okay, good. It's hard. When you have young children, we have a baby coming in two weeks. Boy, we are not going to sleep for a while. <laughs> the Rileys are having trouble sleeping. Uh, draw on your memory now. Think about the last time you woke up in the morning and you had such a good night's sleep. In some ways, it's almost as if you slept so well you were dead. But then you woke up. And the world was new and you were full of energy and you were full of optimism and opportunity and engagement was all around you for the rest of that day. That's a miniature picture of what this looks like when you have died to yourself and died to sin 
but been raised to newness of life in Christ through your baptism. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for new life. We thank you that that which threatens us most has no power over us whatsoever because of what your Son has done for us. Amen.